My name is Erin Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals, investigators, and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Let's get straight to it, shall we? This episode's crime was suggested to me by two people. The topic came up between BC and I while we were getting to know each other uh, for our crime cruise, and I thought it would make an appropriate episode, so I put it on the podcast calendar. Perhaps it was fate, because a few weeks later, Mark from California emailed me, and this was his email. What's up, Aaron? My wife and I live in the Bay Area and have an hour and a half commute to work each day, so we spend it listening to podcasts. My wife introduced us to yours. Last night, she and I watched Frontline's Ghosts of Rwanda. This is what we do on our nights at home. We watch documentaries about war and true crime. My wife said she didn't know anything about the Rwandan genocide, and I told her I remembered seeing it on CNN when I was around 16. She started to question me, but I couldn't tell her what led up to the genocide. I just remember it happening. The next night, we made a mistake and watched Hotel Rwanda, but that didn't answer our questions either. After, we laid in bed and agreed we should lay off the genocide documentaries and movies for the foreseeable future. Neither one of us feels compelled to jump on Wikipedia because, to be honest, we're lazy and sort of depressed now. I thought maybe this would be a good episode for you and you could lay off California for once. Kidding, not kidding. Your neighbor down south, Mark. Mark, I don't always bash California. It's not my fault y'all host a who's who of serial killers and doomsday cults. And also some fabulous wineries. Which makes me wonder. Was there ever an active serial killer in Napa or Sonoma or someplace like that? May have to do some research. Also, don't worry. I did jump on Wikipedia and about a hundred other sites and watch documentaries and read Gerard Prunaire, Gerard Prunaire's eh, book, The Rwanda Crisis, History of Genocide, and dusted off a college paper I wrote for one of my African history classes. I will also lay off the genocide documentaries, movies, and books for a while because I was very close to losing all faith in humanity. Why is history important? History can explain why things happen. It offers us lessons learned from both the good and the bad, which has become a very hot topic as of late. Many of us embrace the good things in history, like kicking some Nazi ass in World War II or putting a man on the moon. But some of us tend to shy away from things that make us uncomfortable. This 
is going to be one of those historical lessons that makes you really uncomfortable. This is a story of how white Europeans fucked a lot of stuff up and a story of how black Africans fucked a lot of stuff up. It's a story about how colonialism, ethnicism, and racism led to the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people. If that's too woke for you, I do not suggest skipping this episode. I suggest putting your big girl panties on and deal with the fact that some of our ancestors were assholes and that some of us, yes, the collective us, could have done more to assist the victims of the Rwandan genocide. So strap in, Cupcake. There's going to be plenty of blame to go around. Before I launch into the history, I first want to apologize if I mispronounced some names and places. Even when I looked up the pronunciations, I still flubbed them. Please don't hold that against me. This is one of those times the history really does start more than a thousand years ago, which obviously makes sense because African history is the oldest history of people. Talking about African history is a bit difficult because for eons, we've looked at it through the eyes of Western culture rather than studying it as those in Africa would. You should first understand that Africa is made up of many, many different cultures and ethnicities and religions. Before white Europeans stormed into Africa, the continent was made up of so many different kinds of kingdoms and groups. Africa is an extraordinarily diverse continent, and it can be difficult to understand the continent if all you've studied is Western European history. When I talk about the Tutsis and Hutus and Twa, you will notice I never use the word tribe. The general sense of tribe, as most people understand it, is associated with primitiveness. This image resonates with traditional Western racist ideas, and can suggest that irrational violence is inherent and natural to Africans. Just as particular conflicts elsewhere in the world have both rational and irrational components, so do those in Africa. We'll explore this later on in the podcast, but until then, it's important to see the Tutsis, Hutus, and Twa as groups of people who have changed and evolved throughout the centuries much like every other group of peoples around the world. The first group of people to venture into what is today Rwanda were the Twa, a group of Aboriginal pygmy hunter-gatherers who settled in the area between 8,000 and 3,000 BC and actually remain in Rwanda to this day. Yes, pygmies are people of shorter stature whose men barely reach five feet tall. Sometime between 700 BC and 1500 AD, a group of people who may have been the Hutus settled in Rwanda and were mainly agricultural people, while the Tutsis, who came into Rwanda a bit later, were cattle people. Depending on what you read, the Tutsis and Hutus have been physically characterized differently throughout the ages. Early European explorers of the time described the Hutus with very dated stereotypes. 
big heads, thick lips, and wide noses, while they described the Tootsies pretty much as, well, white men, but only black. In reality, you could stand a Tootsie and Hutu side by side and not tell who belonged to which group. They shared the same language, traditions, and even intermarried. Why were they described differently then? Because by the time white men came to Africa, a caste system had been created among the three groups. The Twa were at the bottom of the caste system and still lived their hunter-gatherer life or worked as menial laborers. The majority Hutus were the middle caste and primarily worked the land. And the Tutsis were the upper caste, raising cattle and amassing wealth and power. Obviously, the more rich and powerful you are, the more attractive you look. Power is an aphrodisiac, right? Author Gerard Puner chalked a lot of this up to the race-obsessed Europeans trying to justify Tutsis succeeding spectacularly over the Hutus. They must be special to be so rich, right? This social order was called Ubuak and would last until 1959. By 1700, there were around eight kingdoms in Rwanda, and the kingdom of Rwanda, ruled by Tutsis, became the predominant kingdom in the 1800s. Great for the Tutsis, bad for Hutus. Land was taken away from the Hutus, and many were forced into, well, forced labor in order to access their land and to get access to cattle. Pretty much, the only way to eat was to subject oneself to slavery. Meanwhile, many Tutsis grew richer and the Tutsi king was pretty much treated like a god. Sometimes he even wore the testicles of his enemies. And truth be told, I know a few women like that today. The whole thing got even worse in 1884. The Berlin Conference. Probably one of the stupidest things to ever occur in history. The Berlin Conference is the biggest reason why Africa has so many political and economic challenges today. In the 1800s, there was a race between European nations to colonize everything. Yes, of course, colonization had been occurring well before the 1800s, but this is when Europe decided to be, I don't know, I guess I would decide, I would say they decided to be a gentleman about it for the most part. Agreements were reached in onesies and twosies, but the Berlin conference was really the cherry on top. 14 countries, including the United States, got together to carve up Africa. The only areas in Africa that escaped the slicing and dicing were Ethiopia, which would later fall to the Italians in the 20th century, Morocco, which would later bounce between Spain and France, Liberia, which remained free because it was settled by American slaves, former American slaves, and two sultanates in Somalia, which would also fall to the Italians. And freaking Mussolini. The Brits and the French solidified their current holdings in Africa, while the Germans and Belgians got new territory. The Belgian King Leopold got the Congo, 
The Germans got Rwanda. Reading recommendation. King Leopold's Ghost. If you have high blood pressure, take your meds before you read it. The peoples of Africa really didn't get a say in the conference, even though European colonizers claimed that they were doing Africans a favor, trying to stamp out slavery by bringing culture, economics, and Christianity to the, quote, dark continent. In reality, Europeans forced African people into economic slavery, harvesting ivory, rubber, diamonds, agricultural products, and other goods meant to bring wealth to Europe. In the Congo, people's hands were cut off if they didn't harvest enough rubber. And in South Africa, the British mowed down Africans with Gatling guns when they rebelled against their oppressors. The Germans played it a little differently. Rather than sending a mass amount of soldiers to their colony, they instead gave power to the king of the kingdom of Rwanda and worked through him to extract goods and raw materials and generally keep the people in line. The Germans used other Tutsis to administer the colony because they believed the Tutsis were racially superior. The Germans used the Tutsis to keep the majority Hutus in line, and the Tutsis used the Germans to expand their own holdings. Obviously, if the caste system was bad before, it became even worse when Europeans got involved. When the Belgians took over the colony in 1917 during World War I, they continued to favor Tutsi administration. They actually favored it so much the Belgians fired many Hutu administrators, known back then as chiefs, and hired more Tutsis. By the time Rwanda gained its independence, 43 out of the 45 chiefs were Tutsi. Oh, and I forgot to mention the forced social work projects. This one's crazy. The Belgians made it mandatory that everyone had to perform social works, such as building roads and other stuff like that. This took away precious time devoted to growing crops. 50 to 60% of a man's time was spent on social works. If Hutus had not performed these labors to the satisfaction of the Belgians, the Tutsi chief in charge would be whipped in front of his Hutu charges. After, the chief would strike out against the Hutus and make them suffer for his humiliation. All it did was build more resentment, and many Hutus said, to hell with this, and flocked to British-controlled Uganda, where they could at least find paying jobs. Not only that, but the Belgians declared land that Hutus lived on and owned was actually vacant land and took it from the Hutus and gave it to, yes, you guessed it, to the Tutsis or to white European settlers. Religion was also a factor. At the beginning, Tutsis flocked to the Catholic missionaries, while Hutus weren't as keen. The Catholic missions were also one of the few ways a Rwandan could get an education, which meant more Tutsis were educated and more Hutus were not and I refer to Western education. The Hutus who did manage to get an education and even attend theological college, theological college, which was paid for by the church, 
found it difficult to find jobs that suited their education because nobody wanted to hire Hutus. As a result, Hutu clergy within the Catholic Church increased and the church began to empathize with the Hutu majority. It was one of those things, if you can't find a job, you go work for the church. Can you see how the resentment must have grown and grown? Gerard Pruner wrote the following. The Hutu, deprived of all political power and materially exploited by both the whites and the Tutsi, were told by everyone that they were inferiors who deserved their fate and also came to believe it. As a consequence, they began to hate all Tutsi, even those who were just as poor as they, since all Tutsi were members of the superior race. In 1957, a group of Hutu intellectuals hit back with a document called the Notes on the Social Aspect of the Racial Native Problem in Rwanda, also known as the Bahutu Manifesto. This was the first document to label the Tutsi and Hutu as separate races and called for the transfer of power from Tutsi to Hutu based on what it termed statistical law, pretty much the majority rule. The 10-page document called for a double liberation of the Hutu people, first from the race of white colonials and second from the Tutsi. The document in many ways established the future tone of the Hutu nationalist movement by identifying the, quote, indigenous racial problem, unquote, of Rwanda as the social, political, and economic monopoly which was held by the Tutsi. Events came to a head in November 1959 when a Hutu subchief was attacked by a group of Tutsis. He didn't die, but a rumor claiming he did spread across Rwanda and some Hutus responded by killing Tutsi and over 300,000 Tutsi fled to neighboring countries of Burundi, Uganda, Tanzania, and Zaire, known today as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The Belgians saw the writing on the wall and surprisingly, backed the Hutus during what is today called the Hutu Peasant Revolution, which took place between 1959 and 1961. By early 1961, victorious Hutus had forced Rwanda's Tutsi monarch into exile and declared the country a republic. After a United Nations referendum the same year, Belgium officially granted independence to Rwanda in July 1962. And everyone lived happily ever after, right? No. Racial violence continued in Rwanda even after a moderate Hutu president took power, and many of those Tutsi who fled Rwanda trained and formed an army in Uganda. In 1988, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, known hereafter as RPF, was founded in Kampala, Uganda, as a political and military movement with the stated aims of securing repatriation of Rwandans in exile and reforming of the Rwandan government to include political power sharing. 
The RPF was composed mainly of Tutsi in exile in Uganda, many of whom had served in, I'm going to mess this name up, President Yawari Museveni's National Resistance Army, which had overthrown previous Uganda government in 1986, which the history of, U of Uganda is just as weird and scary. While the ranks of the RPF did include some Hutu, the majority, particularly those in you know, leadership positions, were Tutsi refugees. On October 1st, 1990, the RPF launched a major attack on Rwanda from Uganda with a force of 7,000 fighters. Because of the RPF attacks, which displaced thousands, and a policy of deliberate targeted propaganda by the government, all Tutsi inside the country were labeled accomplices of the RPF and Hutu members of the opposition parties were labeled as traitors. Media, particularly radio, continued to spread unfounded rumors which exasperated ethnic problems. By the way, I got a lot of this from the United Nations. In 1993, neighboring African countries pretty much got fed up with the fighting and the thousands of people escaping Rwanda and stepped in to broker peace. In August 1993, RPF officials and the Rwandan president signed a ceasefire and power-sharing agreement known as the Arusha Peace Accords. The Arusha Accords were supposed to end the three-year-long civil war, integrate Tutsi exiles into Rwandan society, and democratize the Rwandan government. And then everybody lived happily ever after, right? No. There were still some pretty hardcore Hutu extremists in the government, and even a peace accord couldn't heal the wide rift between many Hutus and Tutsis. Before the passage of the Accords, the military had armed Hutu civilians with machetes and formed a civilian militia called the Intera Hamwe. These groups created kill lists and a peace accord was not going to stand in their way. Extremists even created their own radio station that played popular music and pushed anti-Tutsi propaganda. The radio station would later play a major part in the terror that was to come. Before the peace accords were even signed, a plan for genocide was already in the works. After the peace accords, the United Nations sent Canadian UN General Romeo Dallier and a contingent of UN troops to Rwanda to supervise the implementation of the accords during a transitional period in which Tutsi were supposed to be given positions of power within the Hutu government. General Dallier knew the country was in a world of hurt the moment he arrived. In January 1994, he sent the UN Security Council of Facts and reported the Rwandan Armed Forces was sitting on a large cache of weapons. The army was checking civilian identity cards to identify identified Tutsi, and he feared the army would use weapons against Tutsi civilians. He reported he and his men were ready to seize the weapons. The UN Security Council told him to ignore it. 
On August 6, 1994, a plane carrying both the Rwandan and Burundi's presidents was shot down over the capital city of Kigali, leaving no survivors. To this day, no one knows who brought down the plane. Extreme Hutus blamed the RPF, but many intelligence theories believe Hutu extremists planned and executed the attack for the sole purpose of starting a genocide. On April 7th, Radio Television Libre de Mali Collins, RTLM, aired a broadcast attributing the plane crash to the RPF in a contingent of UN soldiers, as well as incitements to eliminate the, quote, Tutsi cockroach. Dallier sent 10 Belgian UN soldiers to the home of the prime minister in order to protect her. That same day, Rwandan government soldiers stormed the prime minister's house and murdered her and took the 10 UN soldiers captive. The UN soldiers were tortured and killed. One UN soldier did manage to save the prime minister's children, but other moderate Hutu leaders would be slaughtered that same day. The genocide killings began in mass on April 7th. Both the government soldiers and the Interahamwe took part in the massacre and used small arms and machetes to slaughter Tutsi and moderate Hutus. Hutu civilians were forced to kill Tutsis or be killed themselves. The army set up roadblocks in the city and everyone who passed through was ordered to show their identity card. Those who were Tutsi, Twa, or did not have an identity card were killed. The RTLM radio station worked in conjunction with the army to locate Tutsi and broadcast their whereabouts to the killing squads. Hutu military extremists took over the government and did nothing to stop the killings. After April 7th, the genocide spread from the city to the countryside and soon roads were covered with Tutsi who had been hacked to death by their fellow countrymen. Even churches, missions, orphanages, and schools were raided by soldiers and Hutu extremists. Tutsi women and girls as young as seven were raped before they were killed or were taken as sex slaves for the Rwandan armed forces. HIV positive Hutu men were encouraged to rape as many Tutsi and moderate Hutu women as possible. Dalier requested more UN troops but his request was denied. Other countries did send plane loads of soldiers, but only to help evacuate their own citizens from Rwanda. They were under orders not to interfere. Belgian UN troops left the country and Dalier was left with a contingency of Pakistani, Canadian, Guyana, Tunisian, and Bangladeshi soldiers. Dalier was ordered to leave the country, but he ignored the request and he and his men did their best to set up safe zones, but there was only so much they can do. Some of the UN troops defying orders and others such as foreigners, doctors without borders, missionaries, and other humanitarian groups rescued Tutsi and smuggled them to the safe zones. Dalier had been directly ordered not to engage unless in self-defense. Dallier and his men quite literally 
put themselves between the Hutu extremists and the Tutsi because they knew the extremists would most likely not mess with UN troops. By mid-May 1994, hundreds of thousands of Tutsi, Twa, and even Hutu had been killed. Bodies littered the roads, and thousands of bodies had been dumped in the Kaigera River, where they floated into Uganda and nearly destroyed the fishing industry. Around the world, people watched the carnage on cable news, but governments failed to act. I remember watching the news in 1994 and not knowing why or not understanding why the U.S. didn't do anything. My 12-year-old brain couldn't comprehend politics at the time, and it was all politics. Months before the genocide, in October 1993, the U.S. received a black eye in Somalia when an operation in Mogadishu went very, very sideways. If you've ever seen Black Hawk Down, you know what I'm talking about. The public perception of Somalia screwed the Clinton administration, which is why Clinton and Secretary of State Madeleine Albright failed to act in Rwanda. They didn't want another Mogadishu to hamper Clinton's re-election. Though UN Charter said member nations were obligated to intercede during acts of genocide, White House and State Department press secretaries spun the issue and declared it was very difficult to define acts of genocide, and lawyers were working on it. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of people were being killed in Rwanda simply based on their ethnicity. Secretary Albright would later say that Rwanda was her biggest regret. As the Rwandan military and other Hutus slaughtered Tutsi, the RPF was battling its way from the north and east and was stopping the genocide with every mile it took. Of course, they were also killing tens of thousands of Hutu along their way. Those who could escaped to the north and east and relied on the RPF to protect them until they could reach the border. In June, French troops set up a safety zone in the south, known as Operation Turquoise, for those refugees seeking safety. However, with the advancing RPF, many of those who fled to the French-controlled area were actually Hutu, and many of them had participated in the killings. In July, the RPF forced the Hutu extremist government out and stopped the genocide. The UN finally sent 5,000 troops in. A few months later, the UN would stay in Rwanda until 1996. The following came from the Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Minnesota. Bringing justice to those responsible for the genocide was enormously difficult in Rwanda. More than two-thirds of the judges in Rwanda had fled the country or were killed, with only a third of judges still practicing in the country in prisons at a 200% capacity. The Rwandan justice system was overwhelmed. In an effort to address these changes and foster an atmosphere of justice and accountability, two main justice systems were constructed. 
the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, ICTR, set up by the UN, and Rwanda's own community-driven Gakaka Courts. The ICTR was created to prosecute high-level offenders and thus focused its efforts on prosecuting the main organizers of the genocide. The ICTR indicted 93 individuals and ended up sentencing 62. This includes an interim prime minister of Rwanda and two men who ran the propaganda radio station, RTLM. Perhaps most notably, the ICTR is the first tribunal to interpret the definition of genocide as set forth in the 1948 Geneva Conventions, and it is the first conceptualized rape as a method of genocide. Alternatively, Gakaka courts sought to prosecute lower-level perpetrators. Attendance was mandatory for all Rwandans as communities came together to bear witness to the telling of crimes. Just under 2 million cases were heard at the Gakaka courts with many people found guilty facing punishments from monetary payments to jail time. The number of those killed vary from report to report. Conservative estimates put the death toll at 600,000, while others claim more than 1 million people were killed. After the RPF took over the government, hundreds of thousands of Hutu fled the country, causing a humanitarian crisis in neighboring countries. Some scholars put the Hutu refugee death toll at 200,000. For years after the genocide, Insurgency skirmishes broke out along Rwandan borders, causing even more violence and deaths. Today, the Rwandan constitution guarantees the same rights to everyone, and Rwandans practice a sort of self-censorship and fight against divisionism defined as the use of any speech, written statement, or action that divides people that is likely to spark conflicts among people or that causes an uprising which might degenerate into strife among people based on discrimination. Rwanda is still trying to heal from hate. I don't think it comes as a surprise to any of you that I have a soft heart. I want to help everyone in trouble. My parents taught me if I have the ability to help someone, it's my Christian obligation to help them. The Coast Guard trained me to put my life in peril to save as many people as possible. I am a firm believer that it is our duty as humans to assist our fellow man. That is why it's so confusing to me that the world stood back and simply watched the slaughter on CNN and didn't do anything to help until it was too late. Even when countries were obligated under UN charter to stop genocide, governments cowered behind ambiguous legal definitions and relied on lawyers to give them reasons not to save people from being murdered. In March of 1994, before the killings began in Rwanda, the U.S. brokered peace to end the fighting in Bosnia. 
A year later, Bosnian Serb president Radovan Karadzic breached the peace and in July, Bosnian Serb troops under the command of General Ma Ratko Maladic captured the eastern enclave of Bosnia and the, and the UN safe area of Srebrenica, killing about 8,000 Muslim males in the following week. They also used rape and torture on thousands of Muslim women. In August 1995, NATO forces, including the U.S., launched airstrikes against the Bosnian Serb forces and marched a 66,000-strong NATO peacekeeping implementation force into the country after the Dayton Accords were signed later that year. All that makes me question why the Clinton administration was ready to protect innocent people in Bosnia, but buried its head in the sand when it came to Rwanda. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions why. As for General Dallier, the Belgian government criticized and condemned him for allowing the Rwandan military to murder the 10 Belgian UN troops. I believe that is so highly hypocritical of the Belgian government to cast stones at Dallier when one, the Belgian government is partly to blame for the events in Rwanda, and two, Dallier did what he could to keep people safe after the Belgians in UN ignored his pleads and then abandoned him and his men. As the Belgians departed on April 19th, Dallier felt an acute sense of betrayal. He said the following, I stood there as the last Hercules left. And I thought that almost exactly 15 years to the day, my father, and my father-in-law had been fighting in Belgium to free the country from fascism. And there I was, abandoned by Belgian soldiers. So profoundly did I despise them for it. I found it inexcusable. You can read more about his experiences in Rwanda in his book, Shake Hands with the Devil. It is not an easy read. From a historical perspective, I left a lot out on this podcast. I gave you a very brief overview of why the genocide happened. In reality, we could spend an entire season and then some analyzing the killings, what led up to them and what happened after. The main cause of the genocide was hate, pure unadulterated hate fostered by centuries of one group mistreating another and then being mistreated further by European colonization. These were people who shared the same language, same religion, same culture, same values, and intermarried, had the same families. But power and Western European racism set the stage for a nightmare the world chose to ignore because of politics and other reasons I'm sure you can guess at. In my junior year of college, I took a course simply called African History because it was the only African history course offered at my small university in Oklahoma. On the first day, the professor wrote five words on the board. 
No one cares about Africa. It would seem she was right. I want to draw your attention to the unsolved homicide of of Tiana Smith. On November 5th, 2005, 23-year-old Tiana left her job at McDonald's on Cranbrook Road in Cockeysville, Maryland, around 10.45 p.m. She caught an MTA bus and got off at a stop at the intersection of Utah Street and Fayette Street. Witnesses said a small four-door car pulled up to Tiana and one of the men called her name. After a brief conversation, Tiana, who appeared to at least know one person in the vehicle, got into the car with the men. It was the last time anyone saw her alive. The following day, on November 6, 2005, some children playing in their Gwyn Oak neighborhood found her body in the 6800 block of Fox Meadow Road near St. Luke's Lane. Tiana, still wearing her McDonald's uniform, had suffered trauma to her head and upper body with multiple forced sharp injury wounds. It is unknown why Tiana was in the neighborhood where she was found. She was described by friends as an easygoing, friendly person who was pleasant to speak with. Family and friends do not know of anyone who would have wanted to harm her. Baltimore County Police Homicide Detectives conducted a thorough investigation into the murder. Unfortunately, they were not able to develop any information that might lead to a positive identification of any suspects. I will post a picture of Tiana on Instagram. If you have any information on the the homicide of Tiana Smith, please contact the Baltimore County Police Department at 410-307. 2020 or Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCK-UP. If you feel uncomfortable talking directly to the police, you can contact me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com or on Instagram at thehistorybehindthecrime. Someone out there knows something. You may not but you may know people in Maryland who do. Share Tiana's story with them. This weekend, I'm heading out on another cross-country trip to visit family in Colorado. I'll have my pups with me and plenty of podcasts and audiobooks to keep me company. I will also remember the rules I set down in last season's episode about interstate killers. I honestly hope I did not jinx myself with that episode. What are some of the podcasts or audiobooks that you listen to on long drives? I love discovering new stuff when I'm traveling, so let me know so I can add it. To my American listeners, I hope you all have a safe and happy Independence Day. And take care that you don't blow any of your fingers off lighting fireworks. Eyebrows grow back. Fingers don't. To everyone else not in the U.S., welcome Costa Rica, by the way, I hope you are all having a great summer, or winter, depending on which hemisphere you're in. And let me know what you've all been doing and how you're spending your summer. Or winter. I will be back next time with another episode where I will once again throw California under the bus. Sorry, Mark. Until then, 
do me a favor. Take care of yourselves. And take care of each other. Bye.